There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Drive live. Talks legal. Our guest today is Ludmila Yamalova from Yamalova and Plethka. Ludmila, good to see you this week. How are you? Good to be here. Well, we do have lots and lots of questions. We will get to our topic later, which is about predatory lending. And I had a go explaining it, and I'm sure you will do a much better job when we get there. But we do have lots of questions in already. The first one, if we can kick off with, it says, I had registered a bounce check case with the police. It was against an individual. I understand that his visa is expiring in December. Will he be able to renew the visa if a case is registered against him? Furthermore, can he sell a property if a case is registered against him? Uh, with regards to renewing the visa, no, he will not be able to renew the visa because to renew the visa, you actually need actual physical passport. And since there is a bounce case, uh, 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 the, the bounce check case that's, that has been reported to the police, uh, the usual practice is that the police would actually take the passport of that individual and keep it in custody until the matter is resolved. So as long as the passport retains uh, with is retained with the police, then the individual will not be able to renew the visa because the physical passport will not be available. Now, it's also not really possible uh, and maybe in very very rare circumstances to actually ask the police, for example, to release the passport on a short-term basis uh, in order to uh, to renew the visa, but it's not done very often. You know, certain cases have existed in the past, but not in really an extraordinary circumstances, which this would not uh, would not um, be one. So therefore, in in practical terms, no, the visa will not be renewed. However. Uh, because the passport is with the, with the, with the authorities, um, so once it is released, the individual will be able to have the, any kind of late fines or penalties uh, uh, attached to the overstaying on the expired visa removed or waived because once he shows that the, the passport was with the authorities, and that was the reason why he wasn't able to renew the passport and therefore overstayed in the country. Um, so that's with regards to um, with the police uh, case. And what was the other part? Well, um, if that person who has the per, uh, the passport with the police, will they be able to sell a property if there's a case registered against them? Uh, normally, yes. The, uh, the property, to sell the property, you do not need to present your passport. Emirates ID is alone is enough. Uh, and the land department or the, the transit centers, they don't do the check on the individual at that point in time, nor sh- does it really is it really warranted in this particular case because if he's selling his property, it doesn't really have anything to do with, with him um, having a case filed with the police. Um, so as long as he personally appears there and he has Emirates ID, he will be able to do the transfer. Maybe this person is thinking if they sell a property, they might be able to give them money owed to them. Oh, and there you go. And that's that certainly would be a legitimate reason why you would want somebody to be able to continue to continue on with their lives so that they can recover some money to be able to pay off their obligations. Okay, here's another question uh, that we have in. If you do have a question, I'll just reiterate for Ludmilla. You can text it through if you like. If it's of a legal nature, it doesn't have to be property related, can be health and safety related, for example, which our next question is. 4001 via the free app, or you can call if you like and talk to Ludmilla directly this afternoon on 423-1010. Do you know anything about the health and safety law here? I wager you probably do, Ludmilla. So, here's the story. A 60-inch flat screen TV fell on my two-year-old daughter yesterday. We were in a major supermarket. She ended up with a concussion. 
Um, the child is okay, but it could have been much worse. Um, and this person says they've just left the hospital. We want to complain. We're not sure if they'll take uh, the safety issue seriously here or not. I'll be writing to their headquarters, which is not in this country, uh, because I know that they would be uh, worried about it, would have an issue with it. And this person says, I don't want it to happen to anybody else, quite rightly. Uh, indeed. So the health and, and, and safety issues are, are taken very seriously here. It's just about finding the right authority to report it to or the right avenue to report the incidents through. And there are two paths that, that uh, the, the victims in this case could pursue, and that is one that's criminal and the other one is civil. Uh, with regards to civil, and that is obviously finding uh, filing just a court case uh, against the supermarket uh, claiming uh, compensation for damages. Now, damages here are only uh, compensated if there are actual damages. So in this case, it's whatever the medical bills um, will be or whatever other expenses that would have been incurred as a result of this incident. And in, in this, thankfully, in this particular case, um, while there was a, a fairly tragic situation that happened, the it, it ended well and it ended mm. with a fairly sort of light concussion. Therefore, the medical bills are not so extortionate as to warrant filing a civil case. So it wouldn't really make sense to file a civil case. And the, this jurisdiction does not grant punitive damages. So it's a case, for example, that in the uh, jurisdiction like the U.S. and and then anywhere in Europe would actually be, uh, it would have very be a, a very interesting case for a lot of lawyers because uh, other courts do grant what's called punitive damages and that is to pi- to punish or penalize for example the the, um, uh, the retailer for having these unsafe practices in or- exactly for that reason is t- so as to protect other people uh, here in this country there are no uh, punitive damages and therefore it really would not um, would not work effectively to file a civil case unless um, there's significant uh, financial or uh, medical bills um, that could be compensated now now, that's the civil path. With regards to actually filing with the right authority to, to kind of as a public awareness to ensure that these practices are corrected, uh, there is no ministry or there's no um, authority that, for example, just deals with um, health and safety. There are, there's a health and safety um, type of authorities, but they're responsible more ensuring that, for example, all the buildings are safely designed and they have all the alarm systems, um, proper exits and uh, windows and so on and so forth, but they don't actually deal with physical um, damage or physical injuries. Uh, similarly, with the Consumer Protection Department, which we also reached out and just to, to understand how uh, these inc- incidents can be reported, and they also only deal with basic commercial matters, and that is where money changed hands and, and somebody paid money and and received defective product. Well, this does not happen here. It's, it involves physical injury. So they don't deal with this either. So the best and the only course of action, we also call the civil defense to find out that they recommended that the only course of action is to actually go to the police and file the case with the police. And at that point, the police can obviously work with the retailer to see if they can influence them to, to in- implement better practices or it can be referred to the prosecutor and then ultimately to the court where the court would um, would. I guess, issue a penalty or a judgment, and there'll obviously be a penalty, and perhaps some sort of perhaps some sort of ruling for the retailers to amend their practices. So that's basically the route. Okay, so we we don't really have the culture of litigation and people taking cases against companies in the same way you might see around the world, I guess. No, not yet, because we don't have there isn't really a culture or or a system to award either punitive damages or even future damages or speculative damages, for example. In the U.S., this case could be considered as a very interesting future damages sort of a case as well because the child might suffer various uh, medical issues over the course of a much much longer course. But those would involve uh, future damages, and there isn't really a culture or type of experts here that could attest 
close to to those kind of damages. Uh, I guess the good thing here to reiterate is this is a real-life example, but the two-year-old in question, little girl, uh, who was hit yesterday by this TV, is fine. Uh, it turns Indeed. out to be, uh, I mean, it is a concussion, but a minor concussion, but it could have been much worth, uh, worse, which is the point. We're going to be talking in a few minutes about predatory lending. It's a topic that you brought up last week, Luke Miller. I know it's something that you feel quite strongly about, but practices that perhaps some financial institutions uh, employ to entice people to borrow money and perhaps more money than they really should, more debt than they should be taking on. That is uh, next. That's what we're going to be talking about. 4001 via the free app 423 is the number to share a question or an experience. Drive Live Talks Legal. Drive Live Talks Legal. That's what we're doing at the moment. Ludmilla Yamalaba is here. She's our legal expert. Paul texted in a little while ago. So can I ask uh, send in a question to Ludmilla. Of course you can send it on, uh, in. We've got more questions to uh, come to in a second. But the topic today, Ludmilla, that we wanted to bring up with you because you wanted to bring it up with us. It's something you dealt with very early on in your career. You've been a lawyer for a few years now. Yes, please let's not disclose my age. never ask a lady her legal age, of course. But um, this is something you dealt with. And it, it clearly made an impression on you. The, the idea that predatory lending is in any way okay, it isn't. And it is still unfortunately prevalent indeed and so what we're what we're referring to are basically unfair banking practices or business practices and it usually refers to loans or mortgages or any kind of other uh, lines of credit and yeah. that are given to people at a very uh, unfair if you will uh, rates and conditions on very unfair conditions and unfair would be a very mild way to describe it but it's more exorbitant rates and uh, extortion and rates and and very unreasonable conditions so for example interest rates that range in uh, to the order of for example 50 percent per year uh, and these are very real examples and very real cases um, that unfortunately on top of that and this is why they're called predatory are usually targeted for a less sophisticated um, layer of the population these are people who obviously need money and uh, are then not educated enough to actually not educated not en- enough and do not have the means to seek proper counsel prior to signing these kind of documents and most of the time uh, they rely on the representations of the mortgage brokers instead of actually reading uh, what they're signing and understanding the, the law and the, the repercussions of, of their obligations uh, and so that's uh, so there are two components to it one are the terms of the of the loan and two are the type of people um, that are being preyed upon if you will and so I was exposed to it very early on in my career in San Francisco where I um, worked for a large law firm and that was one of our first pro bono cases uh, as so many um, big firms do, and that they always take pro bono cases, and so that was one of mine. Uh, and it was very similar to what uh, we're now seeing and, and hearing uh, in here in Dubai. And it's interesting because I, I have to, at this point, I'll reveal it's basically almost 20 years fast forward uh, since I started my career. I knew we'd get that. So, yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, but back then in the U.S., it was, in fact, we had at the time uh, laws that were called anti predatory lending laws, oh. uh, which we could rely on and did rely and ultimately settled that case where the bank paid off um, paid off the um, the person though they previously had um, uh, foreclosed on the properties and had threatened all sorts of other uh, legal and criminal sanctions um, so at that point they, they retracted and they paid off the person so you know, at least the result was was uh, positive but it was po- possible because of the regulations that existed in, um, in in the legal system at the time that we relied on uh, now but also that's why it, it required a pro bono kind of approach because because these people 
cannot afford to actually hire paid lawyers. Mm. Uh, so that's in the U.S. Now, fast forward into Dubai and or the UAE. Uh, we are seeing these kinds of practices right now. We've had a few requests um, of people who ultimately just, uh, you know, they, they don't really, they find themselves op- optionless um, because they have taken loans, they needed money, and they were sold a very, a, a dream, if you will, sort of a rainbow, uh, they were told. And once again, these are fairly, there's a less sophisticated uh, segment of the population in the way that they didn't actually read what they signed and they kind of relied on just representations of the brokers and the brokers sold them the dream that this is going to be very easy, you just sign on the dotted line and it's going to be you know it's going to be in the next four years it'll be paid off and in the meantime you have this line of credit and it's all very simple and and um and happy so now when the pay, when the payments started coming in or the mortgage payments it it turns out that this person i mean this one i'll give you one example just uh, in the interest of context so the person uh, lent or uh, took a mortgage of or a loan of thirty three thousand dirhams and for four years in four years um she will have to pay about 70,000 dirhams. So that's about 50% rate, uh, interest rate per year. Um, so it's, as, as you can tell, it's, it's extortionate. Uh, and uh, and unfortunately, the person cannot pay, and especially since so many of us here are expats and we very much depend on our jobs, and then you're, that person's um, job situation changed and she wasn't able to um, to disservice the mortgage payments any, or the loan payments anymore. And so um, there wasn't really an option for her to do anything because because she's already committed. So obviously I, I looked into to the regulations to see if there's anything here to to prevent banks from uh, from charging such rates uh, and, and preying on such people. But unfortunately, at this point in time, there are no such regulations. So in fact, banks can charge whatever rate that they want. So if they want to charge 80%, 90%, they can, as long as you sign on the dotted line, um, then you've agreed to it. Uh, what makes it even more complicated in all of these cases is that all of these loans are always secured by post-dated checks. So mm. if otherwise you could, for example, argue before the court that somehow this was extortionate or exorbitant or try to force the other side to restructure your loan. You cannot do it uh, as long as they hold your post-dated checks and then they they do, banks do often use them um, as leverage to try to, to force people to pay. And the reason this happens is again, and this is the market here is yet not in that regard not regulated and it was not regulated in the US either is because the mortgage brokers usually get paid a percentage today on the on the deal that they sell today. And they're not uh, the, these and these commissions are not tied to the ultimate success or repayment of that loan. And so they're not really interested in seeing what happens once um, that loan is paid off or if it's ever paid off. So their compensation is immediate, and that was exactly the case in the U.S., and this is why so many brokers were so insistent on selling these loans. Well, that's been so often the case in the financial industry, hasn't it, that these commissions are front-end commissions. They're paid straight away, and there is no interest amongst the brokers that work in that fashion as opposed to back-end commissions where you get paid slightly down the line or in stages or over the term of a savings plan or a mortgage or, or whatever it is. Right. I mean, that's an issue. But, you know, a, a cynic would look at this and say, well, you took the money, you signed, you didn't read it, be it on your own head. Sure. And that's and that's basically that's the counter-argument. Mm. But as in the U.S., this was not regulated until recently the, uh, after the financial crisis either. But you know, we use as a term that um, that was, I guess, that, that developed out of this was called the ninja loans. No income, no job, no asset. <laughs> and yet you have a loan. And multiple people, and people had multiple loans these ninja loans and so obviously it's because the banks the uh, the brokers sold the loans to them without having any kind of liability to 
the bank or to the ultimate commitment of uh, or repayment of this loan. So now that's no longer the practice. There have been further uh, further regulations that amended the, the re- regulations that I was involved in back in um, in the old days. So the regulations, at least in the U.S., in that regard, continues to evolve. Um, here we there isn't one yet today, but but obviously we are a country of of, of change and evolution, and laws do um, are introduced quite frequently. So I would be surprised if this is something that we um, we will see in the near future. So in the meantime, you uh, need to remind people, I suppose, if you're a, a responsible institution and you're a responsible broker, whether you're selling a personal loan or a credit card or a mortgage, whatever, you uh, need to remind there's people no, to read no, contracts. Yes. Well, there is no cheap money and there's no easy money. And this is exactly, sure. for example, what sure. these what these um, the people we're talking to right now, what they're saying is that they, the brokers told them, oh, this is very easy and it's it's cheap and it's you're just basically all you do is you sign and here's your money. Well, there's no such thing. And if you just think of that, that the general premise, there is no cheap money, there's no easy money. Um, so therefore, any time, and, and unless it's family member, but even then, whoever's giving you money, they expect um, something quite significant in return, especially if you're high is, a risk. Uh, creditor, which al- most of these people are. Um, so, I mean, if you just remember that framework, so don't believe that it's going to be easy, and um, obviously read what you sign, and, and understand uh, fully the li- uh, the obligations to which you sign on. Uh, and so, and make sure that in the event you default, you have some sort of other backup um, plans to uh, to try to service this obligation, which, to be honest with you, is, is a bit kind of defeats the very purpose, because people apply for loans and, and help, because they don't have the funds to do this. Uh, but and you just basically have some alternative plan, which most of them don't do. So it's it's a tough one because we we, we need money to kind of to 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 succeed and, and maybe develop and progress. But your know, money also obviously uh, loans and credit um, have obligations attached to them. So the message is to understand what you're reading as much as you can, understand what a fixed rate is, understand what a reducing balance rate is. You know, is. it's interesting because you, I'll tell you, talk, even talking about the fixed rate, a lot of the bank uh, bank notes, bank, bank documents related to loans um, have a clause, a wrap-up clause that says the bank has the ability, the authority to increase the rate, to change the rate at any point in time for any reason with no notice. Mm. So, and, and often, uh, again, these, these so-called loans are sold on, oh, there's a fixed rate, or it's a fixed loan. But if you keep digging and keep reading, there are often contradictory terms. We have had quite a few more questions come in for you, Ludmilla. We'll try and get to as many as we can after the break, but we're going to be talking about divorce, common areas in uh, apartments and uh, people who have lost their job and are in financial difficulty. Stay tuned for those. Drive Live Talks Legal. We are talking legal with our guest Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Plethka. Now we do have quite a few questions to fire through Ludmilla if we can kick off with this one. This one says, um, can I file for divorce in the UAE even though I was not originally married here? I'm a resident, she is not. If yes, please can you give me a possible timeline and that question you must get all the time, cost. Uh, yeah, th- those two are impossible to answer because it all depends on individual circumstances. But in general, uh, can you file a divorce here? Yes, you can. You always have a choice to file a case uh, divorce either here or in, in the home country or whatever wherever it is that your, divor- uh, your original marriage um, was uh, registered. 
Now, with regards to the laws that apply to divorce, uh, you have two situations. A default usually here is it'll be Sharia. Uh, but then, because Sharia only applies to Muslims, so there is a choice if you don't want Sharia to apply. And both and both parties have to agree to it. So if, you're, um, if your spouse, for example, does not want to accept Sharia, then it would be the laws of the country in the w- where your marriage was registered. Uh, so, and now, obviously, you'll have to educate the judge here about what those laws are. And that's where, in terms of the timeline, uh, where the it's the uncertainty is 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 it's a very wide uncertainty of um, because it depends on uh, on on the laws depends on the country sometimes uh, if there are a number of cases that for example Indian laws because there is such a large Indian population we know that the local judges here are a lot more versed a better versed in Indian uh, divorce laws than for example maybe some other um, or I guess smaller country on earth so it depends it depends really which jurisdiction you come from and that's with regards to uh, with regards to the timeline now with regards to the cost similarly it all depends because it, if, if your spouse is putting up a challenge um, there could be an unhiring expensive lawyers or or complicating things or, or maybe there are a lot of complicating circumstances along the way uh, that need to be ironed out and a lot of the time I will tell you much depends on actual documentation and so in many cases documentation is not ready there then and it needs to be apostilled and attested in different jurisdictions and has to be translated and has to be presented to the court so that's a, oh, that's where a lot of time um, is is lost if you will and so but once you have all those documents you've submitted all the documents it actually doesn't take that long uh, but it's more just is building up your case. So it really is very individual. Okay, that's uh, an answer to that. I'm just wondering, actually, does your spouse know that is this spouse here, uh, or are you just trying to get rid of them while they're not in the country? I don't know. That's Him. a uh, ominous text, I think. Here's another one for you, Lidmiller. I gave my passport to the police as a guarantee for somebody who told me they had a minor case over a traffic incident. The person has run away, and I found out that the case is much bigger than I originally thought, or I was originally told. The police tell me, uh, I've said how long this is going to take, um... It's almost two years now. There aren't really any answers. There's really nothing I can do but wait. There's really no deadline. This is a real no-man's-land situation. Indeed, and unfortunately and tragically, that's exactly what it is, and that's what it's going to continue to be because there are two aspects of this particular unfortunate situation. One is is um, financial, and the other one is uh, liability. So with regards to a liability, uh, whatever the cause of action that, cl- that originally landed that person uh, with the authorities, uh, has the care guarantor cannot be liable for the original cause of action because the cause of action especially criminal are, uh, are are attached to the person himself or herself so in this case if the guarantor obviously did not, is not the one who committed the, the li- liability wise you cannot be held responsible um, compensation wise or finance uh, finance wise you can and that's why you're a guarantor so in this case let's say if there's a criminal case and there is um, there is a penalty or punishment or some kind of a fine um, that um, uh, that is a attached to the ultimate judgment then you as a guarantor would have to be will have to pay that off uh, and then similarly and then that and that point that's where it gets more complicated because if there is a, a judgment or a fine or some sort of a court judgment that um, that needs to be paid for which you ultimately have guaranteed or have acted as a guarantor now that becomes that case becomes against you so in in most cases you may not be able to uh, to resolve this until you will have paid off that case fully um, so so and 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 that 
an, an, any unpaid debt in this um, in this country can then become criminal as well. So let's say if you have a judgment that you have, you're responsible to paying, and you're not paying it, then that too becomes a criminal offense until you've paid. So it's it's very complicated. And so the moral of the story: uh, be very cautious about giving your passport mm-hmm. as a guarantee for anyone, unless you you really really know them, because this is no man's land. Is unfortunately a very real situation. Okay, uh, final question. Quite a complex one. Um, This says, my maid was on her way to annual leave in July. She was stopped in immigration. The police took her in and confiscated her passport. She had no idea what the charge was. Um, After after interrogation... they let her go. It turns out someone had used her identity to write out a salary certificate from a restaurant. Um, I have been with her to the police, but they say she has to wait until they finish the investigation. Does the Do the police have the right to keep her passport? Is there anything she can do to make sure the police finish the case and send it to the public, public prosecution? Yes. First of all, the police can keep the passport because it's the official authority. So it's the official authorities that can keep the passport and it's basically the courts and the police. Uh, so in that case, yes, especially if there is a, uh, there's a, a case that's filed. Uh, with regards to what she can do, just cooperate really and uh, provide whatever evidence um, she can, which sounds like it's not not very much, because she just uh, ultimately in these kinds of cases they would have to prove that or she'd have to prove that it's not her um, her signature. And sometimes police uh, police or or the pro- uh, the courts will appoint uh, a signature expert to just to make sure that, that she is not actually the one who uh, who signed. But in terms of how else you can expedite this, this is just now uh, depending on where the case is. If it's still with the police, then it may take quite some time before then transfer to the prosecution and from the prosecution to the court. But if it's already a advanced and it's in in the court then um, it's you know it shouldn't be a very complicated matter it's it's scary in many cases and it, it it is only because of the passport but many of these cases actually never you know never really result in any kind of penalties to the person especially like in in this case where um, she obviously was framed uh, but it's just it's more the time that it takes uh, to to resolve and there's really much you can do because it's you know it's a, it's a case that's that's handled and that's administered by the state by the authority not you by an individual so there's not very much you can do just wait but uh, well, you know, ultimately you know, she's not going to be held responsible if she didn't she if she's not the one who signed it okay Paul says it's been three months already it's not yet with the public prosecution he's saying uh, it would help to have an Arabic speaker obviously I suppose. of course always legally. always always and yeah. definitely and it's good to be proactive so uh, mm. what you want to do as the employers or the sponsors you just want to go to the to the police and and, and try to, uh, to to prod them to submit it to the public prosecutor and uh, and see maybe you can the, the thing is the police does not uh, transfer all the cases to cases to public prosecutor only the ones where actually they've collected enough evidence uh, to transfer so in this case if it's still with the police actually it, it's it could be hopeful because it means that you may be able to to convince the police that if that she's not the one who did it and they will just uh, close down at that level and will never be transferred to the prosecution okay that's all the time we've got we always run out of time if you sent a question in today we will come to it uh, when we can early on next week on the program that's when Ludmilla is back next Monday afternoon on Drive Live Talks Legal Ludmilla, as always, thank you very much. My pleasure. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.